This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello again, Art Curious listeners. Jennifer here to introduce our bonus episode for you today. And as you know from my previous episodes and announcements, we are running live bonus shows on Fireside, which is an interactive storytelling platform. And each show, which I normally try to have announced in advance, so uh, definitely watch social media, each show features an interview with a special guest, especially at this point, authors, and art historians, and more. And this week, I am so pleased to bring to you an interview that I had with Thomas Nagovin, who was here to talk about his latest book on Alphonse Mucha, the amazing Czech-born Paris-based Art Nouveau poster designer and artist, and talking about his masterwork, something called Le Pater. And it was wonderful to talk to Thomas and to learn more about this incredible body of work. So I'm sharing our live conversation with you here, warts and all, and hopefully you will enjoy it and that you will join us next time on Fireside, because as I mentioned previously, Fireside shows not only air live, but then they are also interactive so that if you have any questions, you can come and be a part of the show and help to shape our content. So right now, in particular, I am looking for questions questions about anything. They can be specifically about any of the books that I'm promoting on upcoming Fireside episodes. They can be about general questions you have about the podcast or about my writing process or the book or anything. So please feel free to send them out on social media or send them to me by email. That's jennifer at artcuriouspodcast.com. So here we go. Please enjoy this conversation between me and Thomas Nagovin. Hey, Thomas, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Yes. Okay, fantastic. I know we're just getting started and we're still having people kind of filter in here, but let's just go ahead and get started just by asking, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm, I'm doing wonderfully. It's, uh, it is, it's, it's raining in California, so my dogs are very confused. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah, they're uh, California dogs. They're not used to this. <laughs> Water falling from the sky thing. I yeah. am a native Californian, so I completely understand uh, um, yeah. that <laughs> yeah, strangeness. <laughs> I'm a native Chicagoan, so I'm very, very used to rain. And, uh, you know, so it's it's very comfortable to uh, to have a couple nice rainy days. I'm, I'm grateful for it. 
Oh my goodness. Absolutely. I think it took me, I am in North Carolina now, and I think it took me the better part of, oh, probably three to five years to get comfortable with the fact that it would rain all year long and not just in the winter. (laughs) And that sometimes the rain would be very hot. So I would go outside, I would see it would rain and I would think, oh, it must be cold. I should probably get ready. It'd be chilly. And then would realize that it was like 85 degrees still. So (laughs) I, uh, I, I killed so many plants the first few years I lived out here because I was used to watering all these Midwestern plants and I would go out and I'd water my cactus every day. And it's like, why can't I keep these alive? It's like like a different world completely. Yeah, it's a totally different ecosystem. It's like, oh, (laughs) you don't water them every day. They're not used to that. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me here on Fireside and for coming on to talk about your fantastic new book. And I would love to hear everything Alphonse Mucha always. So uh, I'm just going to give a little bit of an introduction to our listeners who might not be familiar with both you or also with my show. So this is Art Curious Live. I have a podcast that is called Art Curious that is normally found on most traditional, I suppose you could say, podcast apps. And it is what I call a show that explores the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. So when I heard about your book, I immediately thought, yes, this is 100% something that I am very interested in, and also something that I feel like my listeners would be very interested in as well. So to intro you briefly, Thomas Nagovin is an author, musician, filmmaker, gallery owner, and a historian specializing in Art Nouveau for over 20 years. His book, Le Pater, Alphonse Mucha's symbolist masterpiece and the lineage of mysticism, originally published as a decadent hardcover volume, is being released as an expanded paperback edition in January of 2022. So Thomas, again, thank you so much for being here. I'm grateful for the invitation. Thank you. I would love for you to start by telling us a little bit about yourself. I found your your background, I mean, just in that biography alone, so fascinating. And also reading the introduction of the volume, I would love to hear a little bit about how you got into Art Nouveau in the first place. My connection to it came from, I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. It was very, very, very working class. And part of uh growing up in an, in an area where there's a lot of Camaros and, and prog rock is that you uh, see the great 1970s album covers that are kind of science fiction futuristic. And, and so then I, I fell into having a love of fantasy novels from the 70s and 80s. And, and I was in a bookstore and I, was, I, I found a book and it had a piece of jewelry that was an iridescent bat. And I just hadn't seen anything like it. And it looked the completely futuristic, very, very strange. And I looked at the date and it was from 1900. And I kept digging in that section a little bit and I pulled out this other book. And it had this furniture that looked like it had just grown out of the earth. And I bought these books and I was working in an antique store at the time and I brought them to the man I worked for. And I said, what is this? Can we ever get anything like this? And he said, oh, no, that's Art Nouveau. That's too rare. You'll never see it. And I was just hooked. 
And what I figured out later is that the artists who were creating this artwork in the 60s and 70s, the artists then back even in the 20s and earlier, who were trying to illustrate what otherworldly landscapes would look like, were directly looking at Art Nouveau. So my, I had been a fan of Art Nouveau for a long time without realizing it, uh, and just finally had traced it back to that source point. Over the years following, as I just kind of came into my own as an art and antiques dealer, uh, I decided that was an area that I wanted to specialize in. The, the Art Nouveau aesthetic and where the, the mystical thinking and our relationship with nature and spirituality and all of those things converge to make you know, really powerful art that's steeped in nature and symbolism. I think that's I, amazing. Please, oh, please I was going to say I could for ramble for a long time. So you got to stop me when I. <laughs> when no, I that's why we are question. here. We are here for the rambling. So I mean, I'll, 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 I'll say one thing just that's really interesting. So, so two two of the things that have happened now is that this book that I created, two of the people that back when I was a kid, when I was 12, 14 years old, falling in love with this aesthetic were an artist, the artist who did all the Yes album covers. He did the, for the covers for the band Asia. And oh, yeah. uh, his name's Roger Dean. And then there's another who's an author named Michael Moorcock, who's actually the man that invented the concept in pop culture of the multiverse which oh, we hear wow. about the new Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. And that's, so he wrote a series of novels in the 60s uh, that became really seminal science fiction. And both of these men who are like two huge influences on my course leading to this book, one of them gave me a fantastic back cover blurb saying that this is one of the favorite books that he has in his collection. And then the other Michael Moorcock actually wrote the introduction to this book and it's just the most glowing praise so i feel like it's it's come so full circle for me to be 50 years old and and have these men who influenced me when i was maybe 14 15 you know being so celebratory about about this particular book I absolutely love that. And I think they're very right to celebrate it because, I mean, I am lucky enough to be someone who is holding the book, not literally in my hands because it's heavy. So it's actually <laughs> sitting on my lap. <laughs> That's but it part is... of the paperback idea is that oh. it's, it's so unwieldy, but we wanted to reprint. Uh, the, the main point of it is that Mouka, who was the most famous poster artist in, in Paris at the turn of the century, um, okay, you could argue Toulouse-Lautrec and Chere, but he was the most famous Art Nouveau poster yes. artist, um, had created a small collection that is his retelling of the Lord's Prayer. Yes. And the reason that he created it is that he was doing all the beautiful Sarah Bernhardt posters and designing jewelry and doing all of these things that were making him the toast of the town. But it, for him, it wasn't emotionally what he wanted to create. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, very interested in the um, philosophical and spiritual discussions happening in Paris salons at the time. And so he came up with this idea of this retelling of the Lord's Prayer using all kinds of codings and sacred geometry and these beautiful illustrations that look like Gustave Doré, post-apocalyptic landscapes. 
but they only printed 510. And so for decades, if it was mentioned in a book, they would talk about it like it was his masterpiece, but they'd never have pictures. And so when it now finally that we're reprinting these, the, the thing that we wanted to do was reprint them to the scale that they were originally created. So that's why the book is so big is that it's, it was meant to emulate the, the experience of, of having one of the original 1899 books uh, or, you know, or, or collections. But I mean, it's so, it achieves it so wonderfully. And something that I love about that is not only do you really get into being able to see the pieces so clearly, but I love how you also arrange it in such a way that you give the background. So you mentioned Gustave Doré, you were talking about William Blake. And so you have this lineage that Mucha is working through. And so it really allows, I think, us, you tell this wonderful story about how we reached this point in Mucha's career. Could you talk a little bit? I, I mean, you were talking about how there were only 510 of these that were printed. And I know a little bit about Mucha just in my general art historical studies, but I knew nothing about Le Pater. Can you tell us a little bit about where this fits into his body of work overall? Something that, that we, we all see when you're looking at, at great art is that even the way that they write their name a lot of times gives away that there's just like a sensitivity there. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like when they're talking about painters and they say, oh, look at how they draw hands, you know, the, the little yes. details. And so one of the things that, that I think that, that Le Pater reveals is that Mucha wasn't just an artist who liked pretty things, but his sensitivity to the geometries that occur in nature and his own intense studies into what would be considered esoteric elements of art, like sacred geometry, was extremely thorough. And so the idea that when you look and you're like, God, why is every millimeter that he does have that sense of harmony? Well, one of the reasons is he was a um, devout student of Freemasonry and of sacred geometry and not necessarily Freemasonry the way that we think of it today, but the idea of these Gnostic practices. And I probably said that word really peculiarly, but, <laughs> and so one of the things that would happen is you would see Mukas when, when someone would kind of discuss Le Pater a little bit, they would say, oh, and he made up all of these completely fantastic symbols and images. And the answer is that he didn't. Right. And so, you know, the way that it fits into his body of work is that the aesthetic sensibility is extremely present. And to someone who just looks at maybe his poster illustrations, they might say, well, this feels a little more mathematically minded or a little more painterly, you know, with some of the sepia plates. But I would say that what we're seeing is the completely unbridled artist, any of the chains of advertising. And, and he would say that. I mean, until his death, he maintained that it was the printed work that he was most proud of. He referred to it as the thing that he'd put his soul into. Mm. And it's so in and, and the context, you know, so the, to print the 
artworks itself, understanding that that academic people for decades had been saying that he made things up. He didn't make them up. You can trace things back to this 17th century artwork, or you can trace this particular symbol back to a 12th century lineage of education that relates to hermeticism or things along those lines. Um, and he was incredibly educated. He knew that these symbols all meant something. Uh, and understanding the coding, I mean, it's the only way you could really view these and, and see it the way that he intended it to be seen. So the reason the book is so thick is it's kind of like, you know, those dummies guide books. It's like, this is the dummies guide to mysticism. We start with Albrecht Durer and we take you from the 14th century up to Mucha's time so that when you're looking at this work, you're understanding not only all the data that he had, but what the spiritual climate was in Paris mm -hmm. at the time, the fact that there were salons devoted exclusively to symbolism and that it was a uh, the same way that we would talk about, you know, I don't know, a movie today. People were talking about symbolism and spiritualism. And the last thing I'll say on that is just that you had microscopes and telescopes in people's homes for the first time. So the attention to the idea that there's more to the world than our eyes can see was extremely prevalent. And if I'm looking at a slide at a leaf and I'm seeing these pores and this world is opening up, simultaneously people were saying, well, then what else don't we see? Right. And that's why the spiritualism was so elevated in the late 19th century. Absolutely. I love that period in history in general, I think it's so fascinating. Yes. What actually inspired him to take on Le Pater? What was it about the Lord's Prayer, do you think, that drew him into wanting to make that the focal point of this project? Um, he, said, uh, he said this in an interview, and I'm going to misquote it, but the, the point was that it's, it is a perfect literary work, is, is what his perception of the prayer was. And an interesting part of that is that he, he kind of like me growing up South side, Irish, Chicago, you know, you're raised Catholic and then your worldview gets perhaps larger. Uh -huh. uh, and in Mooka's case, the Freemasons and the Catholics were, were at odds with each other. And so when he was illustrating this perfect prayer, he, his deity is androgynous. So the idea uh, that he was completely plugged into the idea of the divine feminine and the idea that any deity has to be beyond gender. And then even more than that, the idea of, of self-involvement in human betterment. Um, when the edition was released to the Czech market, they had to change the, some of the, the text plates, one of the things that's going to be in the new edition is that instead of touching on it, we actually translate those. The reason I didn't include them in the first edition is just because they're terribly limiting and boring. And so you take this art, these artworks that are full of imagination and potential in the infinite unknown and what the church wanted him to adapt his text into has nothing to do with the illustrations. They say things like, it's all about putting your trust in God and, and um, removing any autonomy from the human in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Like it, the lead us not into temptation and, 
deliver us from evil, where there's the figure floating. And in Mooka's version, the idea is that he believes in a benevolent universe. Yes. And that through surrendering yourself to the idea of that we as humans have it within our power to achieve our infinite potential. And through, you know, the, the, the entire course of what he's examining in the, the story, it's a very, very, it places the responsibility in the hands of his reader mm. to be the best person that you can be. Now, the, the version that then is the Czech edition that was the Catholic Church approved one looks at this figure floating through the ether prote protected by this spirit against all these creatures and the idea again of that benevolent universe protecting the one who dreams uh it's replaced with well now you are dead and so now you are free from your human body and you can just serve god oh wow like it's very strange it's like yeah. the story's over there's no pursuit of potential it's like it's it's literally just this you know that you know the christian servitude kind of idea so um i think what he saw in the language of the prayer was the potential and when you view it through his lens um you know it's 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 very different from the standard judeo christian interpretation he definitely views the idea of heaven as uh, a state that can be attained um, you know, I mean, it, it, that's a whole other conversation, but you know, it, his ideas were, were definitely based in a lot of this, you know, the, the Rosicrucian thinking or, um, you know, some of the hermetic thinking, which is the idea that, that the only goal on the planet that's really worth pursuing is the betterment uh, of ourselves and of being in service to other living creatures. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. It's, you know, it really it's is. powerful. Now, because there was the French edition that was different from that Czech edition, was it, how was it received in Paris or in France in general when it was released? Because was there more of an understanding of Mucha's original intention with it because of that Rosicrucian beliefs or the symbolist salons that you're talking about? Was there more of a, a, a connection in that way? Um, I would say that, it's um, the the without making your your interview political. <laughs> I would say that you know Paris was a very very a, a perfect example is the idea of of the divine feminine even being part of the conversation. The idea that a deity could have androgynous elements and didn't need to be an old white man with a beard mm -hmm. was extremely welcomed in Paris. Um, and even if someone didn't agree with the idea, it was a passionate and positive discussion. Whereas other parts of, of the world and, and not to denounce the Czech Republic uh, at that time, the church was, was very stoic uh, in their thinking at that point. And so the, the difference so, so on a global sense, Le Pater was at its very, very best, um, extremely celebrated, probably at the most common, uh, marginally understood, meaning like if Radiohead released an album of static, 
You know, most people would be like, I don't know that I get it. I don't know. I really like when they sing, you know, like it's, it wasn't one of his hits. Right. But right, right. they only printed 510. They sold out immediately. Uh, they were presented in the World's Fair in Paris in 1900. All the artworks were on display. So in every academic circle, every art circle, every circle where people were thinking both about what the present was and what the future was, um, it was overwhelmingly well-received. He would tell stories about he was, there was a count that summoned him. And I forget, it was some like, I don't know if it was Moravia or somewhere. And he was passing through, the count summoned him. He went to meet him and it turned out the person wanted Mooka to sign their copy of Le Pater. Oh, wow. So it's like amongst the people that were able to acquire one of the copies, it was very cherished. It was very celebrated and very respected. And, and again, he himself, you know, a, a, applauded it as his best work. One of the reasons it wasn't as well known is it something that they did with Mooka's art at that time is he would make just, let's say, a chocolate advertisement. And people would look at it and think it was so beautiful. And because lithography was this new invention and things could be kind of mass produced in a way they couldn't before, uh, before the month was up, you would have seen the poster on the walls of Paris. Galleries would have bought part of the print run to sell to the public. Then they would have taken the image and put it on chocolate tins and silk fabric and everything under the sun so that it was completely inundated into popular culture. And so what Mooka did with this is that he demanded that the plates be destroyed after the printing. Oh my goodness. I I think I missed that part. I didn't know that. Yeah. So they printed the 510 copies and then that was it. And, and what had happened is he had made so much money for this printer that it was like, that was his ask. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. It was, it yeah. was he, for four years, he had a terrible contract, made the guy a ton of money and then said, I want to do this. And here's the rule. I want it printed in this incredibly small quantity and I want the plates destroyed and that then there's nothing ever reprinted. And so that's why it disappeared. Cause unless you could physically see one of the copies, um, you know, they weren't on display in museums. It was just, you also had two world wars. Yeah. So 510 copies, less two world wars. There's a lot more to my conversation with Thomas, so come right back after these messages for the rest. I'm about to admit something shocking to you. I love history. I know, right? Who would have thunk it? But I truly do. And that's why I'm looking forward to the Wondrium course, The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Because it's all about commonly held myths and half-truths about American history and teaches us the real story about what really happened. Kind of like this current season of Art Curious, all about fact and fiction. Wondrium's curated library makes lifelong learning fun. Their engaging videos are mind-blowing and full of content covering every topic you've ever wondered about. You can dive into documentaries, travel logs, tutorials, and so much more. I think that you might love learning about the facts and fictions of American history as much as I did. And you can check out The Skeptic's Guide to American History and the thousands of other videos on offer. I have an amazing opportunity to get you started. A free trial of unlimited access. To get this offer, sign up now through my special URL, wondrium.com art. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com art. 
Bombas's mission is simple, to make the most comfortable clothes ever and to match every item sold with an equal item donated. So this holiday, when you gift Bombas to someone on your list, you're also giving them to someone in need. So it's a give-give. Bombas designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a luxuriously cozy feel. They are made from super soft materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy winter layers. There's a pair of Bombas socks for everything that you do, and they come in performance styles for every sport and holiday styles for when you're feeling festive. Bombas t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams and soft fabrics, and they are also the perfect weight so that they hang just right. And Bombas underwear has a barely there feel with second skin support that might make you forget you're even wearing them in a good way. Bombas are the coziest gifts for everyone on your list, and thanks to their festive gift boxes, you don't even have to wrap them, so all you have to do is the giving. Socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters in that order. And that is why Bombas donates one for every item that you buy. Bombas are made to be the perfect gift and made to give back to those in need. So, happy giving. Go to bombas.com slash artcurious to get 20% off any purchase during their big holiday sale. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash artcurious for 20% off. Bombas.com slash artcurious. Thank you to Storyblocks for sponsoring today's episode. Have you ever had to make a professional video? If you haven't, let me tell you, making a compelling video story can be really expensive and super time-consuming. But Storyblocks is now here to make it easier on you, the creator, than ever before, allowing you to keep up with the growing demand for video content without sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Storyblocks is the first unlimited download subscription-based provider of stock video and audio, with over 100,000 customers in the television and video production industry. All of their assets, from video clips, music, stock images, sound effects, and more, are royalty-free, so you can download your content anywhere for both commercial and personal use. Plus, their library is being constantly updated to give you the best options to bring your story to life. Storyblock's flexible subscriptions and licensing fits every budget, whether you are an individual, a team, or a large organization. And you get comprehensive coverage so you can distribute your content wherever and whenever. I recommend trying out their unlimited all-access plan that gives you unlimited downloads of more than 1 million assets in their library, so you can try out multiple options quickly and find the perfect fit, so you can create more and spend less, all without sacrificing quality. For those producing creative content, Storyblocks is a game changer. So I want you to try them out now. To learn more, please visit storyblocks.com slash artcurious. Storyblocks.com slash artcurious. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. 
I have a, a bunch of questions swirling around in my mind. The first is I wanted to ask about how long it took for him to execute the project. And then I want to go out and kind of on a meta level, I want to ask you about how long it took for you to make this project come together, your book, your understanding of this project. So it it's took, like I had two different stories yeah, running in parallel. Well, in it ways. took me a lot longer than it took him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, I would say, so one of the things that he, um, that he did that, that I have to disconnect from the timeline of creating this art is that he had been doing his own many, many years of study into hermeticism, into this kind of symbolism mm -hmm. and the ways that those intuitively connect to larger stories. And, and it's, you know, it's kind of like having a, a, a footnote in a book where you could read one paragraph, but maybe there's 30 pages of footnotes. That's what Lepatera is like. And so each one of those fragments that he used, he did know what they were long before creating this. Mm -hmm. So there was a language that was there that I don't know how many decades it took him to learn. But in terms of actually creating this work, I'm going to give you a broad answer. I'm sure that if I pulled out that book that you have there, that I, I could look <laughs> at the dates and say, he thought about it at this point and kind of moved into it. I think that the entire process probably was under two years. Yeah. Wow. There were a lot of other things that he was doing. He was creating murals for the uh, pavilions at the World's Fair in Paris. Like a lot of this was all converging with the idea that all of these things were going to be presented at the World's Fair. Right. And so he was, his dance card was incredibly full at that time. But so I, I'm sure that it was under two years. And then for me, it's kind of the same thing where I, I first saw a La Pater plate, maybe um, around, it was 1999. So it was literally a hundred years after he created it. And I saw this plate and it was the lead us not into temptation one. And there's this beautiful figure floating and there's kind of a ghostly spirit wrapped in, in this fabric floating, protecting the, this, this, dreaming spirit from all kinds of Lovecraftian monsters lurking in the shadows. And so the part of me that grew up in a neighborhood with Camaros and Yes albums was like, this is incredible. It's, and, and again, the handwork was so superior to any kind of fantasy art that I had seen. And, um, and so I bought this at an antique show and then I started doing my research and I kept, I figured out what it was from. I kept looking in books and again, no pictures, no documentation, nothing, just everyone saying, yeah, it's amazing. It's like hearing about a blockbuster film, but you can't see it anywhere. I was like, I can't. And so a few years later, I was able to acquire a copy of the full set. And so then I had the distinct impression of not understanding what I was looking at. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was, there were parts where I'm like, this is beautiful, but you know, what is it? And I would show it to people that were MUCA fans and they kind of didn't like it because it wasn't just pretty women. It's these weird right. mandalas with angels with swords and floating eyeballs. And it's very psychedelic rock poster looking. I love it. Yes, and, for sure. But, and so then for me, it just took a long time 
of asking people, do you know what this symbol is? Do you know what this is? Do you, and, and, and most of the time hearing the answer, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and then learning little fragments and then building a huge library myself of books you know, from the 1850s through the 1950s of different occult studies and finding like, I recognize that symbol. This, you know, why is this statue draped in fabric? Oh, this refers to this Egyptian statue. Like, and so that entire experience for me took almost 20 years. It took that whole time. And it, you know, it wasn't constant, but it was always, always on my mind. And then the actual sitting and writing of the book took three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, it's amazing. Well, the hard part was getting it down to 240 pages. Oh, I'm sure. That's always the the hardest part is editing down for sure. Yeah. One review, I think it was on Goodreads. Someone left a really, really nice review. And their only complaint was that they had this list of things that they wished that I had gone into more. And I just laughed out loud, like, if you put this in your passenger seat, your tires on that side go down. It's big (laughs) and heavy. And what I had to do is anything that didn't polish the arrow shaft of flying from no understanding to Mukas La Pater had to go. Mm -hmm. And so there's a million different avenues, and I would encourage people to, you know, if there's a fragment there that you're interested in, there are there are more stories in there. Uh, Mooka's son wrote a book that's very, very full of all kinds of great anecdotes. And um, that's a great place to start if you want to learn more. But if the point is to understand Mooka's relationship with mystical thinking and how he came to create this body of work, 240 pages was the best I could do. That was as, <laughs> that was as much as I could get it down to. But I also think it's just amazing because you've created this new resource for hopefully generations moving forward. Because again, I had never known anything about Le Pater. And now I'm able to look at this wonderful book that you've put together, which is not only gorgeously illustrated, but that history, that story, the background, you've given us a little bit of information on those symbols. So I only have the very vaguest basis of kind of metaphysical thinking and Masonic uh, symbology and so forth. So this is so helpful because it, again, it feels like it hasn't been done elsewhere and that's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been what, what it's been what I've done kind of with our gallery. And, And we've always had this very strange, narrow space. Like if you were interested in this kind of thing, we've always been the the people to go to. And so the thing that was really interesting with this book is that half of the people who buy it are Art Nouveau fans that don't know a lot of the mystical thinking. And I would say a good 50% are people that are very familiar with the mystical thinking that aren't familiar with Alphonse Mucha. Oh, wow. And so it's been really interesting to see, like if I'm doing an interview, there's a completely different, like I was on a thing called talk gnosis two days ago. It's completely different set of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Very. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, I never know what's going to happen, but I'm ready for it. And then the (laughs) other thing that we did is I love books. I love books. I don't have a tablet. I'm not. I'm just not good at reading like that. And so one of the things that happened, there are some artworks in there 
there are museums that had to go in and rephotograph work to be able to allow us to reprint it at the scale and quality that I wanted to see out of the book because I'm such a stickler for that detail. And there was one museum, they were so helpful. And they they sent me the image. We licensed uh, a, a particular image that's in there. And I said, guys, this isn't, uh, there were two gentlemen that were helping me. I said, guys, this is great, but I actually need it bigger. And they said, okay, well, let's get you the raw file. Let's see what we can do from there. So they sent me the bigger file. I said, oh man, I really, really appreciate this, but I actually do need it larger. And the reply was just, how big is this book? (laughs) (laughs) Big. Yeah. And then I sent in the dimensions and they were like, all right, all right. And so there were people like the thing, part of what took so long, but was a really magnificent experience is that people were very helpful. In every case, there were artworks that I tracked down that I would say a a substantial amount of what's in the book has never been printed anywhere before. There are illustrations of Mukas that have never been in a book. There's at the end of his life, he wanted to revisit the Lord's Prayer in a series of paintings. And it's talked about that he would do this. But for the first time, I found one of his study paintings. So like that's in there. There's... But everybody was super, super helpful. And the point is that I wanted it to be both the academic thing that that you comment on, which I'm really proud of, but even more like if you're a book lover, that it's like a really, really romantic experience. And it's so big and you can really see all the detail in everything. We worked really hard on all of that so that it's like taking a course in in this metaphysical thinking. I think it's amazing because you're able to dig into, as you mentioned, that thinking about the design of the process so that you have those preparatory drawings, those gorgeous sepias, oh my gosh. And then be able to compare them to the final piece. It's wonderful. I am such a a sucker, I guess, for the behind the scenes of things. And that's one of the things I love the most is being able to watch an artist's process as things morph, as their thinking changes or not. And this book, you really get to feel like you can do that. It's wonderful. Oh, I appreciate that. One thing that I really tried to be careful with is the idea that, you know, there's there's times when you maybe watch a movie and then if you're a super fan, you watch the 14 hours of behind the scenes footage. And I wanted it to be where there was no part of the journey from the first page to the last where you felt inclined to maybe tune out. Like I... Even with the preparatory drawings, there's a reason why there's multiple sometimes on a page because I thought if I devote, you know, it's like if each page turn is a beat, uh, you know, some things didn't warrant the same level of attention and other things warranted extra attention. And so I tried to make it so that it's a really casual, comfortable, easy read from start to finish, but that if you want to go deeper, that if you go back, that you'll definitely find things the second, third, and fourth time you read it that you missed the first time. Absolutely. I feel like even in just flipping through it again today to refresh myself, I, I was noticing things that I hadn't noticed before. It's it's like a little treasure hunt every time. I wanted to ask before, actually, let me back up for a moment and just tell everybody who is physically in the audience or uh, I guess in the studio with us here on Fireside today, that if anybody has any questions, 
you'll see there's a little reaction button that's at the bottom of your screen. It has the little heart eye emojis. Just go ahead and let me know by hitting, let's go ahead and just choose the heart. Hit the heart emoji if you have a question that you wanna ask us, and then I can invite you to come on the stage and ask the question out loud. But in the meantime, also, I just want to let everybody know that if you click that little fortune cookie icon that is scrolling by underneath our stage area, that you'll see a link where you can go and actually purchase the book and find out more information there. So I encourage everybody to do that if they're able. And Thomas, if we could just, while I'm waiting to see if anybody has questions in the audience, would you be open to doing a little bit of a like lightning round questions? Yeah, of course. Okay. Mostly course. they're just fun things, but I just want to start and I'll just give you a quick moment to, uh, to share your thoughts. Let's start with asking, what is your favorite artist besides Alphonse Mucha right now? Oh my God, me. <laughs> That's a good one. I like it. <laughs> what is your favorite recent book besides this one? <laughs> It's a cheat otherwise, because oh of course this should be it. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I have uh, I've, I've like a dozen books that I'm reading at any time. And the the two, I've, I've been reading a bunch of Gore Vidal uh, uh, biographies, because one of the things that I'm working on is a complete re-edit of Caligula. Oh my gosh, wow. So the funny thing is that the, the things that I are really, really all over my head right now is I've got this mountain of biographies of like John Gielgud and Peter O'Toole, and I'm reading all of these to immerse myself. But the one thing that I'm reading that's, that's um, I haven't finished it, so I don't know how I feel about it yet, but it's a book called Belonging by Nora Krug. Mm. And it's uh, kind of an illustrated book, but it's about, she's talking about her experiences being a German uh, and coming to terms with, the history that her country had uh, during the war. Like she was a post-war child. Oh, wow. um, and so that's been really, really, really fascinating so far. I'm only like a third of the way through it, but I'm enjoying it immensely. That sounds really interesting. I yeah. Read that. What makes you most proud? Again, besides this amazing book project. Oh my gosh. Uh, how wonderful my son is turning out. I love that. As a yeah, mom he, of a six-year-old boy, that is speaking yeah. right to my heart. <laughs> no, he, every day, like he's such a little punk, like he's constantly punching me in the penis and like <laughs> things like that. But like, cause we always rough, like we're always playing, but yeah. like anytime I'm like, there's any glimmer that like, I might really be hurt. He immediately shifts gears on a dime and he's like, dad, are you okay? And so for me, that's like, that's the, the fact that he can shift gears so quickly and that his default is so sensitive is uh, I'm like, okay, I'm doing a good job. That is wonderful. That is what I can hope for as well. I love that. Yeah. Favorite time periods in history. Oh my God. I mean, it, you know, aside from I, my favorite time period in history is going to be 10 years from now. That's a good answer. And I've never heard anybody say that yet. I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, I love Weimar Germany, but I love like hot and cold running water. Yeah. I love the Bella Poke, but I love internal plumbing, you know, <laughs> like all of that. And, and we're in such a strange time right now that I 
I, it's certainly something we've we've seen. You know, it's like that thing that history doesn't repeat, but it echoes. Yes. And I'm uh, I'm optimistic that you know this is um, with our relationship with technology and humanity. I was telling a friend of mine the other day that you know I grew up believing in Bigfoot and UFOs and all of that. And then you grow up and you kind of are like, all right, maybe some of this isn't real. Yeah. And so I was teasing him. I'm like, man, we're inoculated against all the conspiracy theories because we grew up with all this crazy stuff in our head. And so I feel like most people see something and what 20 years ago would have been printed on like Xerox paper at a Kinko's <laughs> and stapled together that looks like a real website. So it must be real. Right. And so I feel like people, so my friend was laughing saying, so you're saying we're inoculated against disinformation. I was like, yeah, you know, like when you grow up believing crazy things and, and you watch it play out, you learn that, you know, the world is a lot less complicated and less, you know, there's, there's not a man behind a curtain on things the way you want it to be. And, and so I really think that the public at large isn't, prepared for that. And so the advent of something that is a beautiful tool like the internet, mm -hmm. uh, I think that it's creating scenarios that are beyond what most people have a capability of, of processing. Oh yeah. And so I think you've got a lot of really good people that are being extremely manipulated and misdirected. And, and I think that a decade from now, a lot of that is going to have played out because you can't, it's, it's unsustainable. Yes. Oh, I hope you're right for sure. And I love that positivity and that hopefulness because I could certainly use some of that right now. But, it, but it's always happened. That's true. I mean, like, you know, like, I mean, could you imagine if you were growing up in Germany? And that's an area that I'm just super educated on. So it's, it's I, I go to that place and I look at what was happening in the media and I look at the way that people who were you know, we're, there's a series of books I'm working on right now about this magazine called The Orchid Garden, which was the first fantasy magazine. And all of these people were working together. And it's so bittersweet to read these stories and read that, okay, this person then got out of Germany. This other person went into a camp. This person became a Nazi propaganda minister, like different things. And you're thinking like they were all hanging out at the water cooler yeah. just, in, just 15 years earlier. But then you fast forward. And again, was it sustainable? And the answer is that, you know, I, I do believe in this keys really into the Le Pater ideology. There's a great quote. That's the last quote in the Le Pater book. And Mucha talks about that the tides of time, things go up and down, they move left and right. But in the end, eventually all things rise. And I, that has proven to me to, to be true when you look across history, and I, I believe it's true today. And I think that's such a beautiful statement. <laughs> Do you like how short idea. my rapid-fire answers are? <laughs> I'm sorry. No. I told you I'm a rambler. I'll, okay. No, but right, I, next feel like, I feel like I'm learning so much, and it's also a wonderful way to connect to your writing style and to this book in general. I think it's wonderful. Before we end, because it looks like we don't have any questions here, but I do want to encourage everybody to reach out. Uh, if you're not doing it right here in the studio today, please feel free to reach out to me and maybe even Thomas if there are any questions. Again, please do buy the book if you're able. 
check out the link in the website right there in the fortune cookie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And before we go, Thomas, if you will just tell us a little bit more about Century Guild and what you were alluding to what you do at the gallery, but I would love for the listeners to learn a little bit more about it. Well, Century Guild, we we started in 1999 and it was um, originally an art gallery that specialized in Art Nouveau. And the thing that we always leaned toward were the things that were, were left of center Um, theaters like the Grand Guignol, which was the original horror theater in Paris and, Mm -hmm. and things like um, German cabaret type, you know, related artifacts or artwork. And so for, for a good 15 years, we really just focused on the commerce of art sales. Um, But what we've been doing the last few years, we did close our physical location uh, and our focus now is really on the publishing. So we do still do the art sales, but you know, there's kind of, there's people who work with me that handle that now. And the thing that I really focus on are things like this book, because all of these anecdotes that are in my head and just research that I've done across the last 20 years, you know, we, we, and, and the other part is that we've had such an incredible collection and it's all things that maybe they aren't in any other books or anywhere on the internet. Um, or if they are on the internet, there's no context to them. Um, and so we, we, we do a lot of small books that are, you know, like $30, $30, $35 books that are just great resources for artists that have lots. It's kind of the equivalent of getting walked through the gallery uh, with a beautiful show up. And then there are books like uh, this one, the Le Pater one. And there's a couple more in the pipeline that are big ones like that. And then a thing that we're doing next year is we've collected a bunch of artworks for a thing called Temple of Medusa. And we've got uh, just over 30 artists who've given modern interpretations of the idea of the Medusa myth as an archetype, if it were in honor of her instead of making her a horrific or vengeful character. Oh my gosh. Like what, what if there was an alternate reality where her, where instead of becoming, you know, I mean, obviously she's become an archetype for victimhood and transcendence, but what if, what if it never even went that far? Like what if like people had just, you know, the idea that people would be sent to fight her, like as a testament to their strength. And, but what if she was revered? What if she was worshiped? What if all of that uh, was completely inverted? And so we've got 30 contemporary artists that really explored that theme in a super interesting way. And so in January, we start promoting that. And in February, it'll be on Kickstarter. And that book will be on the screen. So it's some historical, and then we try to keep the ideologies of this 19th century thinking moving forward um, by connecting with our, our contemporary art community. I love this so much. I hope that you will send me or just keep me apprised of that when it goes live so that I can share it with my listeners as well. Oh, definitely. That sounds 
so fun and super interesting. I love the ideas behind it. And I just really loved this book. And I'm so appreciative that you were able to come on and talk to me a little bit about it because it's truly beautiful. I, I feel so lucky that I'm looking at it right now. So thank you so much. I, the uh, soft cover will be out in January. It is infinitely more affordable and uh, fits in a backpack. You do not need an RV to move it. <laughs> so we're trying to cover both. If you want the full art experience, really nothing replaces the large book. Um, but we did want to make it, you know, so that there was also an affordable option. So hopefully people, um, more people get to read it. Definitely. As soon as the, the paperback version comes out, I'll also share that here as well. Um, is there any other last minute things you want to share about where people can find you? Um, if you, if you go to centuryguild.net, we have a mailing list and, uh, of course, you know, there's social media, like there's at century guild on, um, Instagram. I'm not, great with all of that. <laughs> so the easiest okay. way is to is to go to the website and just buy one of our books and then you'll wind up hearing from us about about everything that we do and you know you are, we've got a lot coming up and if you're interested in things that are a little less expected again things that are a little more uh mystical or romantic or or just you know things that haven't been reprinted in a century that's that's kind of what our our library looks like. Fantastic. This is all speaking directly to my interests. This is a time period and uh, an art movement, a style of art that I very much love. So I can't wait to keep following what you are all doing. Oh, thank um, you so much. And thank you again for being on here. Thank you to our listeners, both in studio and then also this will be on the Art Curious podcast in, oh goodness, a, a couple of weeks. So I will let everybody know when they can hear the replay. And Thomas, again, thank you for joining me here. I appreciate it. I love this book and I can't wait to keep sharing it. So thank you so much. Jennifer, that's so kind. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So everyone, please tune into the Art Curious Podcast. If you are not already subscribed, that's at artcuriouspodcast.com. And again, you can listen to the replay of this show both here on Fireside and then also in the podcast feed in a few weeks. So I hope everyone has a good night. And Thomas, thank you again and have a nice evening as well. Thank you, Jennifer. Bye, everybody. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this bonus episode recorded live on Fireside. Join me next time in a live version of our show. And in a few weeks, I'll be releasing another Fireside episode with author and art critic Jennifer Higgy. So send me those questions, any questions at all that you have about anything art curious in advance or by sharing them live on Fireside. You can register today for a free Fireside account with my link, firesidechat.com slash Jennifer Dassel. And Dassel is spelled D as in David, A, S as in Samuel, A, L. See you on Fireside soon and see you back here next time for a new episode of Art Curious.